Welcome to From Cork with Love Adventure, the only programme from Cork, Ireland, in which you can hear what it's like to be Irish in Cork from the point of view of a totally unrepresentative man. This is Paul Amani welcoming you to the latest episode. Chapter 8 of Wanderlust, A History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit has an interesting title. It's called A Thousand Miles of Conventional Sentiment, The Literature of Walk. A Thousand Miles. I wonder where this chapter's going to take us. It's, we've moved now, I presume, on from Wordsworth to Quincy, Keats, Coldridge and Co. who are all in Chapter 7. And this is coming to you from the wood, which is full of people today. And I'm strolling along. Enjoying the fresh air, the blue sky, the few white clouds overhead. And at this point in the walk, the green of the evergreen pine with occasional flashes of deciduous trees. The first part of this chapter is called The Pure. Other kinds of walk survived. And early in Thomas Hardy's novel, Tess of the Dubervilles, one of them collides with the traditions drawn from romanticism. Tess and her fellow peasant girls are celebrating May Day by going club walk, a pre-Christian spring ceremony in which they walk in procession across the country, dressed all in white. The young women and a few older ones go in a, quote, processional march of two and two round the parish, end quote, and the designated meadow, begin to dance. Looking on, quote, were three men of a superior class, carrying small knapsacks strapped to their shoulders and stout sticks in their hands. The three brethren told casual acquaintances that they were spending their wits and holidays in a walking tour through the Vale. End quote. Two of these three sons of a devout clergyman are themselves ministers. The third, who is less sure of the order of the world and his own place in it, chooses to leave the road and dance with the celebrants. The peasant women on their procession and the young gentle men on their walking tour are both engaged in nature rituals in a very different... The men with their costumes of knapsack and staff are being artificially natural for their version of how to connect to nature involves leisure, informality and travel the women with their highly structured right handed down from an unremembered past are being naturally artificial hold on, we've got the men are being the men are being artificially natural and the women are being naturally artificial I love the way she writes, really is so good. This is back to the women. Their acts speak of the two things specifically excluded from the walking tour, work and sex. Since it is a kind of crop fertility rite they are engaged in, and since the young, local young men will come to dance with them when their day's work is done. Nature, after all, is not where they take their vacations, 
but where they lead their lives and work. Sex and the fertility of the land are part of that life. But pagan survivals and peasant rights are not the dominant cult of nature. Nature, which had been an aesthetic cult in the 18th century and become a radical cult at the end of that century, was by the middle of the next century an established religion for the middle classes and in England far more than the United States for much of the working classes as well. Sadly, it had become as pious, sexless and moral a religion as the Christianity it propped up or supplanted. Going out into nature was a devout act for those English, American and Central European heirs of Romanticism and Transcendentalism. In a cheerfully malicious essay entitled Wordsworth in the Tropics, Aldous Huxley asserted... Hold on, I better stop again. Here, Louis, come here. Louis. See, Louis, this is bound to happen when a lot of people are here. I know, I know. We'll just put this on here. There's no dog coming this time, just two people. A man and a woman. Who knows where they're from? Who knows where they're going? Hello, hi. Hello. It's a lovely oh, day, isn't this? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. At least I've discovered a quicker way to put the lead on him. Right, where was I? Back here. We were talking about sexless and uh, established religions and romanticism and trans- transcendentalism. In a cheerfully malicious essay entitled Wordsworth in the Tropics, Aldous Huxley asserted, In the neighbourhood of Latitude 50 North, and for the last hundred years or thereabouts, it has been an axiom that nature is divine and morally uplifting. For good Wordsworthians, and most serious-minded people are now Wordsworthians, either by direct inspiration or at, a sec- or at second hand, a walk in the country is the equivalent of going to church. A tour through Westmoreland is as good as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. <laughs> the first essay specifically on walking is William Hazlitt's 1821 Ongoing a Journey, and it establishes the parameters for walking in nature and for the literature of walking that would follow. Quote, One of the pleasantest things in the world is going on a journey, but I like to go by myself, it opens. Hazlitt declares that solitude is better on a walk because you cannot read the book of nature without being perpetually put to the trouble of translating it for the benefit of others. And because I want to see my vague notions float like the down of the thistle and not to have them entangled in the briars and thorns of controversy. Much of his essay is about the relationship between walking and thinking. But his solitude with the book of nature is very questionable since in the course of the short 
piece he manages to quote from other books by Virgil, Shakespeare, Milton, Dryden, Gray, Cowper, Stern, Coleridge and Wordsworth, along with the book of Revelation. Where would we be without the book of Revelation? He describes a day of walking through Wales, launched by reading Rousseau's Nouvelle Eloise the night before and quoting Coleridge's landscape poetry as he goes. Clearly the books set forth the kind of experience of walking in nature he should have. Pleasant, mingling thoughts, quotations and scenery and Hazlitt manages to have it. If nature is a religion and walking its principle right, then these are its scriptures being organised into a canon. Hazlitt's essay became the foundation of a genre. It appears in each of the three anthologies of walking essays, an English one from 1920 and two American ones from 1934 and 1967 that I own. And many of the later essayists cite it. The walking essay and the kind of walking described in it have much in common. However much they meander, they must come home in the end, essentially unchanged. Both walk and essay are meant to be pleasant, even charming. And so no one ever gets lost and lives on grubs and rainwater in trackless forests, has sex in a graveyard with a stranger, stumbles into a battle or sees visions of another world. The walking tour was much associated with Parsons and other Protestant clergymen, and the walking essay has become something of their primness. Most of the very fine pieces of writing, most of the classic essays cannot resist telling us how to walk. Individually, some of these are very fine pieces of writing. Leslie Stephen, who in his In Praise of Walking, takes up Hazlitt's theme of the musings of the mind, writes, The walks are the unobtrusive connecting thread of other memories, and yet each walk is a little drama itself, with a definite plot, with episodes and catastrophes, according to the requirements of Aristotle. And it is naturally interwoven with all the thoughts, the friendships and the interests that form the stable of ordinary life. Which is very interesting in its way. And Stephen, who distinguished himself as a scholar, an early alpine climber and an athletic walker, is himself interesting until he goes on to tell us that Shakespeare walked and so did Ben Jonson and many others on up to inevitably Wordsworth. And then moralizing sneaks in. He says of Byron that his, quote, lameness was too severe to admit of walking and therefore all the unwholesome humours which would have been walked off in a good cross-country march, accumulated in his brain and caused the defects, the morbid affectation and perverse misanthropy, which half ruined the achievement of the most masculine intellect of his time. 
Stephen goes on to announce, after throwing in a few dozen more English authors, walking as the best of panaceas for the morbid tendencies of authors. And then come the instructional shoulds, the shoulds that none of these essayists seem able to resist. He writes that monuments and landmarks, quote, should not be the avowed goal, but the accidental addition to the interests to the interest of a walk. Another person on the road. Here, Louis, come here. This is a mushroom gatherer. Come here. Come here. Good boy. Good boy. Mm. Okay, now we're walking up. Hello. How are the mushrooms? Are they? Uh, oh, God, yeah, they're good. One and a half hour in. One and a half hour. Wow. May I take a photograph? <laughs> I just love to... Uh, yeah, I met see. somebody another day. And the, oh, there are these people passing on bicycles. Yeah, yeah no, just lots of them. A like. lot of people today. Oh, this is a... I've never collected mushrooms. Yeah. Oh, that's terrific. But it's like, you, you have to know which one, like, you know. Yeah. Lots yeah. of them is with the poison, like, you know. Did you find many of the red ones? Uh, yeah, 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 but I passed it. Like, yeah. like I, my father was teaching me when I was young. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Your father taught you, yeah? Yeah. yeah. And uh, do you just know them, or do you know. always uh, yeah. find yeah. ones like that? that one, oh, that's white. a big white one. That one, white one. Yeah. It's over 20 euros per kg. It's very expensive, I show you. 20 euros. And what is that one called? Oh. Uh, that porcini mushrooms. It's like uh, borovic. I, I don't know how it's in English. Borovic. Borovic, yeah. Borovic, right. Yeah. Wow, it looks fantastic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and there is, there is uh, very tasty, like, you know, it's the best one, like, you know. Will you make soup with it? Yeah, or? soup and uh, for sauces, like, you know. Yeah. I yeah. make, like, I, I do slices, dry them. Must have another one of that one. That yeah. one looks uh, terrific. Oh, thank you. Sure. Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, so that one is like dry one, is 20 euros, uh, like 5 euros for a small packet. Like, yeah, you know? yeah. So it's very expensive. And that. is this a very good place for mushrooms, or is there better years, places? Years ago was very good, like now it's too many Polish and Lithuanian people, you know, so... Like, they know I, I, I know some places, like yeah. that, this is only from one place, like, you know. Oh, really? Yeah? Yeah, like maybe... Small area. 200 right? meters, like, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but like I'm I'm here over 10 years, like in this forest, oh like you know, so like I know, now I'm going to other one, and I'm 100% sure that book could be fully like, you know. And tell me, is there any, what weather is the best for mushrooms? Like, uh, that, like today, yeah, yeah. it's like in the rain, and uh, like now it's a bit cold, I say, you know, if it's warm and uh, rain, yeah, the best one, like, you know. Yeah, but like in Poland, we have only two months for mushrooms. It's yeah. like end of August, from end of, of end of August to to November max, to right. the fourth of November. And in this country, from and when? in this country is from May to December. You know, long time. Yeah. Well, good luck and thank you for that information. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> All the best. Thanks. Bye bye. Okay, Louis, we can let you off. Oops, way, whoa, 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 okay, can go. Now, I did, I've learned to even more.
Okay. Now, wait a minute. He read all about the instructional. He writes that monuments and landmarks should not be the avowed goal, but the accidental addition to the interests of the walk. It didn't take Robert Louis Stevenson nearly as long to get to that fateful word. Two or three pages after he begun his celebrated 1876 essay, Walking Tours, he declares, a walking tour should be, should be gone on alone, because freedom is of the essence, because you should be able to stop and go on and follow this way or that as the freak takes you. And because you must have your own pace and neither trot alongside a champion walker nor mince in time with a girl. End quote. He goes on to praise and criticize Hazlitt. Notice how learned he is in the theory of walking tours, yet there is one thing I object to in those words of his, one thing in the great master's practice that seems to me not wholly wise. I do not approve of that leaping and running. On his own long walking tour in Francis Savennes, a mountain range described in Travels with a Donkey. I've heard of that book, Travels with a Donkey. Never read it, though. Stevenson carried a pistol, but described only picturesque and light comedic comic situations. Few of the canonical essayists can resist telling us that we, sh- that we should walk because it is good for us nor from providing directions on how to walk. In 1913, the historian G.M. Trevelyan begins his walking with, I have two doctors, my left leg and my right. When body and mind are out of gear, and those twin parts of me live at such close quarters that the one always catches the melancholy from the other, I know that I shall have only to call in my doctors, and I shall be well again. My thoughts start out with me like blood-stained mutineers debauching themselves on board the ship they have captured, but I bring them home at nightfall, larking and tumbling over each other like happy little boy scouts at play. The possibility that some of us would prefer that happy little boy scouts keep their distance doesn't occur to him. But it must have to one writer who blasphemed against the cult in 1918, end of First World War. In his Going Out on a Walk, the Anglo-German satirist Max Beerbohm, oh, wonderful, wonderful illustrations, Max Beerbohm exploded. Whenever I was with friends in the country, I knew that at any moment, unless rain were actually falling, some man might suddenly say, come out for a walk in that sharp, imperative tone which you would not dream of using in any other connection. People seem to think there is something inherently noble and virtuous in the desire to go for a walk. Beerbohm's heresy goes further. He claims that walking is not at all conducive to thinking because though, quote, the body is going out because the mere fact of its doing so is a sure indication of nobility, probity, and rugged grandeur, end quote. The mind refuses to accompany it. He was, however, a voice crying out in a densely populated but otherwise convinced wilderness. On the other side of the Atlantic, 
One essay on walking had lurched towards greatness, but even Henry David Thoreau could not resist preaching. I wish to speak a word for nature, for absolute freedom and wildness. He famously begins his 1851 essay, Walking. For like all the other essayists, he connects walking in the organic world with freedom. But like all the others, he instructs us on how to be free. I love that. That's the connection. Being given instruction, walking is freedom. Now I'll give you instructions on how to walk. Oh, I love that. Quote, I have met with but one or two persons in the course of my life who understood the art of walking, that is, of taking walks, who had a genius, or so to speak, for sauntering. A page later, we should go forth on the shortest walk, perchance, in the spirit of undying adventure, never to return, If you are ready to leave father and mother and brother and sister and wife and child and friends and never see them again, if you have paid your debts and made your will and settled all your affairs and are a free man, then you are ready for a walk. His are the most daring, wildest instructions, but they're still instructions. Soon afterwards comes the other word, must. You must be born into the family of walkers, And then you must walk like a camel, which is said to be the only beast which ruminates while walking. I'm now sitting. When a traveller asked Wordsworth's servant to show him her master's study, she answered, Here is his library, but his study is out of doors. Although the walking essay was officially a celebration of bodily and mental freedom, it was not actually opening up the world for that celebration. That revolution had already taken place. It was instead domesticating the revolution by describing the allowable scope of that freedom. And the sermonizing never let up. In 1870, a century and a half after Hazlitt, Bruce Chadwin wrote an essay that set out to be about nomads, but detoured, detoured to include Stevenson's travel with the donkey. Chadwin wrote divinely, but he always declined to distinguish nomadism, a persistent travel by any means, seldom primarily by foot, from walking, which may or may not be travel. Blurring those distinctions by conflating nomadism and his own British walking tour heritage made nomads romantics, or at least romantic, and allowed him to fancy himself something of a nomad. Soon after Chadwin cites Stevenson, he falls into step with the tradition. Quote, the best thing is to walk We should follow the Chinese poet Lin Po in the hardship of travel and the many branchings of the way. For life is a journey through a wilderness. This concept, universal to the point of banality, should not have survived unless it were were biologically true. None of our revolutionary heroes is worth a thing until he's been on a good walk. Che Guevara spoke. 
of the nomadic phase of the Cuban revolution. Look what the long march did for Mao Zedong, or exodus for Moses. Movement is the best cure for melancholy, as Robert Burton, the author of The Anatomy of Melancholy, understood. That's what Chadwin has to say. Now, there's a phrase Chadwin uses there, or a sentence Chadwin uses there. Movement is the best cure for melancholy. And you know, I've often heard that from people who say that the best cure for depression is to get out into the open air and walk. I remember being in the grip of a bout of depression that clung to me uh, like a barnacle and being urged by others gently, considerately, but persistently to walk. I remember saying to myself, it's good to walk. And I remember saying to other people that if you're shut up in a house and you're feeling completely unable to move at all, unable to go out into the fresh air, just open the door and put half one foot out into the open air on a Monday and close the door again. And then on Tuesday, open the door and put a whole foot out. Wednesday, two feet. Thursday, walk a yard. And so on. Just to make the experience possible. The ability to move is horrendous. I know. So where was I? 150 years of moralizing, exclamation mark. A century and a half of gentlemanly exhortation. Doctors have asserted many times over the centuries that walking is very good for you. But medical advice has never been one of the chief attractions of literature. Besides, only a walk that is guaranteed to exclude certain things Assailants, avalanches, is truly wholesome. And only such walking is advocated by these sermonizing gentlemen who seem not to see the boundaries that they have put around the act. One of the delights of urban walking is how unwholesome it is. Oh, I love that. Whoppy. Gentlemen, I say, because all the writers on walking seem to be members of the same club, not one of the great walking clubs but a kind of implicit club of shared background. They're generally privileged. Most of the English ones write as though everyone else also went to Oxford or Cambridge. And even Thoreau went to Harvard, and of a vaguely clerical bent, and they are always male. Neither dancing peasant lasses nor mincing girls, with wives rather than husbands to leave, as the above passages make clear. Thoreau considerately adds, quote, How womankind who are confined to the house still more than men stand it, I do not know. End quote. Many women after Dorothy Wordsworth went on long solitary walks, and Sarah Hazlitt, Hazlitt's estranged wife, even went on a walking tour alone and kept a journal of it, which, like most of these documents of female walkers, went unpublished in its time. 
Flora Thompson's account of her journeys on foot across rural Oxfordshire to deliver mail in all seasons and weather is one of the most enchanting descriptions of country walks, but it is not part of the canon because it is by a poor woman. About work and sex, in that a gamekeeper whose ground she regularly crosses courts her unsuccessfully and buried in a book about many other things. Like the great women travellers of the 19th century, Alexandra David Neal in Tibet, Isabel Eberhardt in North Africa, Isabella Bird in the Rockies, they are anomalies, these walking women. The reasons why will be dealt with at length later in chapter 14. Oh, that's a pity, I wanted to have them dealt with right now. By the late 19th century, the word tramp, as both noun and verb, was popular among the walking writers, as was vagabond and gypsy, and far down the road in a different world, nomad. But to play at tramp or gypsy is one way of demonstrating that you are not really one. You must be complex to one's simplicity, Settled to desire this kind of mobility. Bruce Chadwin, to the contrary, Bedouins do not go on walking tours. Stephen Graham, an Englishman, who early in the 20th... Sorry, hold on. I I think she's actually talking to Bruce Chadwin. Now, I wish I knew which year Bruce Chadwin died. But Bruce Chadwin is so well-known, so much revered... On the Black Mountain, I think. I've read uh, several pieces by Chadwin, but never a whole book. He's greatly admired. Anyway, she was saying, Bruce Chadwin, to the contrary, Bedouins do not go on walking tours. Stephen Graham, an Englishman who early in the 20th century took remarkable long walks through Eastern Europe, Asia and the Rocky Mountains, wrote, along with his books on specific travels, a hybrid volume called The Gentle Art of Tramping. It gives cheery anecdotal instructions on the art for 271 pages in chapters on boots, marching songs, drying after rain and the trespassers walk. Thoreau alone seems to get lost in his own thinking and to find himself in surprising places, advocating abandonment, manifest destiny, amnesia, and for his work, a rare nationalism. But by the time he is advocating the latter axe-swinging frontiersmen rather than unarmed walkers are his protagonists. Perhaps the limits are implicit in the form of the essay, which is widely regarded as a kind of literary birdcage capable of containing only small, chirping subjects, as distinct from the lion's den of the novel and the open range of the poem. Writing and walking were reduced to fit each other, at least in this major tradition in the English-speaking world. End of part one of chapter 8. Now we're talking about the English-speaking world. She has, Rebecca Solnit's already spoken about Kierkegaard, 
German, I think, although I'm not 100% sure, a Russo-French. She, she hasn't uh, delved into any writers about walking in any other languages at great length. I wonder will that be the case throughout the book. This would not be... I wouldn't be criticising her for this because you can't read the literature of the whole world about walking, but it certainly would be very interesting to find out, and we will surely get to Mao Zedong. Now, where is my dog? He's gone ahead. I must whistle him back. That was from Cork with Love Adventure, sponsored by Nobody. This is your host, Paul Omani, saying I hope it was worth your while listening. Bye for now.